Welcome. We're Janet, Odessa, and Malik, and you're listening to On Call Thoughts, a podcast where medical students talk about mental health, work-life balance, medical specialties, and much, much, much more. Just as a disclaimer, this podcast is meant purely for entertainment purposes and should not be interpreted as medical advice, nor do the views and opinions expressed on this show represent those of our faculty and the University of Ottawa as a whole. If you do have medical concerns, please consult a physician. I'll just get started with our first question time today, and um, I'll just start by asking you, it's pretty general, um, how did you get into teaching? And if you were, um, if you're comfortable, you can tell us a little more about the path that you took to get here today, and kind of throughout medical school and after medical school, what led you in that direction? Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I'll, I'll start off by saying thank you guys so much for, for inviting me on here. Uh, and I want to add to your little disclaimer that you gave before, because you can't say this about your own podcast, but this is actually amazing uh, that you guys do this, uh, especially the topics that you cover. I, I've had to listen to a number of your episodes uh, and you do such a good job of covering really important topics. So thank you for doing this. My own path uh, is fairly straightforward, which is actually a little bit atypical for people in an academic center. Uh, so, you know, as as Janet had sort of summarized um, I, uh, I did all my training at McMaster as an internal medicine resident, never really anything that was very education focused sort of as a, as a formal part of my training. What you're going to notice is basically as soon as you are senior to anybody else in medicine, people are going to expect you to teach. So, you know, basically medical school year one and year two, you're allowed to be just the student. And then as soon as you become a clerk, all of a sudden you're going to run into medical students who are first and second year medical students and people are going to expect you to teach them. Uh, and, and that happens very quickly and very informally. And so that was part of what I was involved in at McMaster. The only formal education side of things I ever got involved with while I was there uh, that started to build up my interest in medical education was some work we were doing on teaching residents how to be teachers. Uh, because it sounds awesome to somebody like me to say, hey, as soon as you get to be a little bit senior, you have to teach. But then at the same time, when you think about it, that doesn't make a ton of sense. Like when somebody wants to be a teacher, they have to go to teacher's college. They have to learn how to be a good teacher. And we somehow just assume that doing three or four years of medical school or sometimes one or two years of medical school qualifies you to be a good teacher. And at no point do we ever try to teach people how to be better teachers. And so I did a little bit of that work when I was at McMaster and that started me down that path. When I came to, to Ottawa for cardiology, I knew that education was something I really enjoyed. Uh, now, I, I should probably clarify that, you know, there's two different ways you can approach teaching and education. You know, they, they, we use them synonymously, but in the world of clinician teachers and clinician educators, they actually mean two different things. So teaching is my passion. I love having medical students, having residents going to the bedside or having a, a sit-down didactic teaching session and just teaching things. Education is much more along the aspect of curriculum development um, and, you know, working on the fundamentals, which is a little bit more what I do now at the medical school. So teaching was always my passion. I knew that was something I was going to want to do when I came to Ottawa. Uh, so did my cardiology residency here. And the, like I said, as you'll notice when you're residents, there are innumerable opportunities to teach as you're coming through, uh, formal and informal. Uh, and then did my echocardiography fellowship here and then went and worked uh, at the Ottawa General for a year. When I first graduated uh, from my cardiology training, 
my thought was that I, I was sort of more interested in having, you know, my dedicated clinical practice, being able to do those things that I was interested in uh, and focusing on that. I, I very quickly learned that I don't enjoy my job if I'm not teaching somebody. The idea of getting up in the morning, going to work, being a cardiologist for the day, and then going home and not getting to talk to anybody about how cool that ECG was or how unusual this finding is, sounds like the worst thing in the world to me. So, you know, at the general, I obviously had lots of opportunities to teach. I was working with medical students and residents while I was there. Um, but when the opportunity presented itself to work at the Heart Institute where we have cardiology fellows, I, I jumped on that because that was an opportunity to teach people at all levels. Uh, and so that's sort of how I came to where I am today. And in some respects, that's unusual because most of the time when you talk to people who work at an academic center, it's going to be, I went all over the place. I did all these different kinds of things before I sort of finally settled down. I, I was really lucky in that my path was fairly straight to get to where I am today. Um, in terms of the educational things that I do, uh, you know, the, the being the content expert for, for the medical school, for example, that is just a product of asking people. Uh, and if there's sort of one theme to my course through my medical training, it has been that if you want something or you're interested in something, if you just tell people about it, you're, you'd be amazed by how often that opens up doors and opportunities for you. Even if it's not asking for a position or asking for, for some sort of title, just saying, hey, I'm interested in this, you'll quickly find people who share your interest. And, and that's exactly how this happened. When I was a, a fellow, I just said, hey, I, I'm really interested in education and curriculum building. Uh, and it so happened, I didn't realize it at the time, I was talking to the person who was the content expert for cardiology who said, well, uh, is this something you'd like to do? So that's, that's sort of how I got to be where I am now. Yeah, and I'll, uh, I'll just jump on one thing you mentioned um, that I found super relatable, especially like on my end. Um, it's when you mentioned how teaching makes you fall in love more with the topic you're teaching. Um, I think a lot of us can definitely relate to that. And um, personally, like I'm working as a teaching assistant right now for like a bio course. And it's really funny because that course was the one I liked the least during my undergrad. <laughs> and now that I've TA'd it a couple of times, I actually start to really enjoy the content of the course and just teaching it is so much more interactive and fun than sometimes just being that student. So um, thank you very much for sharing your experience with that and cardiology as well. Oh, and I completely agree with what you said. And I actually feel like like teaching and learning are a positive feedback loop. So when you start to teach something, you're quickly going to realize that you can't teach it well unless you have a really in-depth knowledge of that subject. Now, you can teach just knowing what's in the textbook and just sort of having memorized stuff, but you're not going to be a good teacher unless you really understand the material. And once you understand the material, then you can start to play around with it a little bit in your mind. It starts to be a little bit more fun. And then you share that understanding with students who get passionate about the subject and being around people who are excited about a subject makes you excited about the subject. Uh, so I, I completely agree. And it's the reason I like teaching so much is it makes all of the things I do in the day fun. Uh, you know, just, just being able to share it with, with people who are learning. Yeah, I actually think that teaching, like I've used it as a study technique before, even just working in groups and when people have questions, taking the opportunity to answer if you know the answer because, or like that challenges your knowledge further. Or I can remember even in, in studying, like in my room, just pretending to teach it to a pretend class, how embarrassing, but that is, I honestly found that really worked just to really ensure that you you understood the, the content in, in an in-depth way. Um, so that's a really great point. And nobody will ever challenge your knowledge of a subject like somebody who doesn't understand it. Uh, you know, I, I'm sure you've had teachers say this to you and, and they're being completely honest. 
Nothing is more nerve wracking for some people. And, you know, Jen and I were talking earlier about how you guys had had a podcast on imposter syndrome. Nothing will give you imposter syndrome quite like being in front of a group of students who are 10 years your junior from a medical training standpoint, who ask you a question in your field of expertise, and you have to say, I, I don't know. Uh, it's a really valid, perfectly reasonable question that sounds like it'd be really basic. And I, honest to, to God, don't know the answer. That, that can be challenging, but also makes you so much better because you're constantly having to learn about your subject. Um, along those lines, I actually find teaching my residents how to be teachers is also a great way to evaluate their knowledge base because I watch my residents teach more junior learners. And it's a great way to pick up on holes in people's education and figure out where they could actually learn a little bit more because you watch them try to teach a subject and somebody asks a question and all of a sudden this house of cards that they very tenuously put together just crumbles apart and, and you realize like there was a fundamental piece missing there. It's, it's, a, it's a great, education is just fun, teaching is just fun, but it's a super valuable tool at all levels as well. Uh, well, again, thank you for sharing that, Dr. Malloy. Um, I was just wondering, I, I know you mentioned that your path towards teaching was fairly straightforward, but were there any significant moments or maybe a mentor that really pushed you in the direction towards pursuing medical education as a significant part of your career? Yeah, at, at all levels. Uh, you know, as you go through, the, the good teachers will stick in your brain. Um, and, you know, teachers who weren't quite as good will just sort of fall by the wayside. Thankfully, I say this as a teacher, it's uncommon that a teacher is so bad that you remember them from being bad, but, but the good ones really stick with you. And I've always been of the mindset that the best way to grow as a clinician, as a person, is to pick people who, who, who demonstrate what you would like to be, uh, whether that's with their patients or whether that's with their students. And then try to figure out what is it that they do that makes me like them so much and then try to build that into your, to your own practice. So, uh, you know, along the way, every teacher I've had who's been good has sort of sent me in that direction. The most recent one of those who really stands out in my mind would be my program director, who's now a colleague of mine because we're in the same division, uh, Mike Froschel, who you guys have probably met at some point. Everybody knows how good of a teacher Mike is. Um, and so, you know, watching him teach and just sort of observing in myself how excited he made me about cardiology made me think, oh, that's really fun. I'd love to be able to do that myself. Yeah, that's super cool. I think we can all relate to the fact that we've had many great educators throughout our few months, years of medical education thus far. So it's exciting to hear that you're excited about that too. So you've clearly like differentiated between medical education and teaching. I'm wondering if maybe you can just elaborate further on the different ways one could get involved in teaching and then the different ways one can get involved in medical education at various levels. Yeah. So one of the things I love about teaching, you know, meaning having students at the bedside or giving a lecture or, you know, it, it's the act of sort of imparting the knowledge is it's built into our medical training that you'll become a teacher. Whether you become a good teacher or not so good teacher depends on how much you care about becoming a good teacher and, and, and to some extent on your natural abilities with it. Uh, but there are so many opportunities as you're going through your medical training to start teaching. The, the only barrier is whether or not it's of interest to you. Uh, you know, time is probably the resource that, that you have to balance when you're going through your medical training and deciding what you want to spend it on. There's certainly other things that you could do to occupy your time. You know, a lot of people get really into research and that's fine. I, can't stand it, but um, you know that that's a really valuable thing that a lot of people do. For me, I would have much rather 
be a little bit late in getting my clinical work done because every single time we saw a patient on rounds, I spent 10 minutes talking a little bit about what was going on than to finish rounds on time and have time to do my research in the afternoon. So, you know, if you choose to make it a priority, it's always available to you. And that's the nice thing about teaching. From an education standpoint, that's where you kind of have to go a little bit more out of your way because now you're talking about the formalities of education. So how do you build a curriculum? How do you write a test? Um, you know, how do you evaluate students? How do you, you know, get feedback and incorporate that into a curriculum? All of those kinds of things require a deeper understanding of education. Now, they're not completely separate. I think having a good understanding of one is going to make you a little bit better at the other, but it's surprising how different those things can be. From an education standpoint, most of our medical educators, and I'm a, I'm a clinician teacher by sort of rote in terms of my signed up contract at the hospital, our clinician educators tend to be much more along the lines of people who have like a master's of medical education. So they've actually gone out of their way to get additional training in that field. Now, I still think that that's valuable. And at the moment, I'm actually in a course through the University of Ottawa uh, that's designed to sort of give people an introduction to health education scholarships or research around medical education and those kinds of things. And that's because the more and more I teach, the more education starts to overlap and the more I'd like to sort of be able to incorporate those things. So, you know, you can also start to get involved in education at any point in your medical career. You just sort of have to go out of your way to seek those kinds of opportunities. And, and the best way to do that would be to find the people who are the educators around you and let them know that you're interested. As fun as teaching and medical education are, they're not actually the most popular things for people to do as clinicians or as medical students and residents. You know, research, you know, whether that's clinical or, or lab research tends to get a lot of the attention. And so if it's an interest of yours, if you reach out to, say, a program director and say, you know, hey, I'm really interested in medical education, could I do some work with you on the curriculum and sort of do those kinds of things? You're almost universally going to get positive responses to that. So just as a follow up, can you speak maybe a bit to why medical education and or teaching um, are maybe less popular in terms of the amount of time people dedicate to them? I think it's just a balance between time and resources. Uh, there's very, very few people that I've ever met uh, over the course of my training who don't enjoy teaching. Uh, you'd be hard pressed to go through all of your medical education and not at some point sort of pick up the teaching bug and be like, oh, this is kind of fun. But there's always competition for your time. Um, and to some extent, uh, you know, people will gravitate towards other things just because that's where their interests lie, right? Of course, you know, if you're somebody who just adores research and, and, and clinical research, and that's what you're going to gravitate towards. And there's only so many hours in a day. At the end of the day, you've got patients who are the most important part of your job, and you're trying to tack on these other things to that time. Um, and, and so you get to a point where you don't have to choose only one or the other, but if you want to get really good at one, you've got to focus on it. And so Research tends to pull people in that direction. Why are so many people pulled toward research when there's perhaps few pulled toward medical education? There's probably a lot of reasons for that. Uh, part of it might just be who we select in medical school, right? Uh, you know, the, the people we're selecting who go into medical school who become physicians uh, oftentimes are people who are very academically inclined. They're people who are very curious from a research standpoint are much more likely to pursue those avenues. And increasingly, when we talk about residency, people are doing research to prove an interest in a field. And just like teaching, once you start doing something, you often find that you start to enjoy it. So the more research we're making our medical students and junior residents do in order to advance, 
the more likely they are to pick that up as something that's an interest to them. Whereas teaching, because it's built into what they're doing from day to day, doesn't seem like a dedicated thing that they can maybe go out and seek as a, as a bigger component of their job. There's other aspects to that. You know, you can get a grant uh, for your research, you know, so you can fund your research. You can have dedicated time just for your research. It's a little bit harder to do that for, for teaching and medical education. It's not impossible, but it's a little bit more challenging. The avenues are a little bit less. You know, I, I wish I, I knew a good answer to your question because then I could encourage more people to be interested in teaching. But I actually see a general trend towards people taking a much bigger interest in teaching and education. Yeah, um, I definitely think your point sums up a lot of what I was thinking when uh, Jenna asked the question. And um, I think that also like one thing that came to mind when you were mentioning, I guess, who we select for medical school, et cetera, is how I think a lot of us don't necessarily get as much exposure to teaching during our undergrad before applying to medical school. A lot of, I guess, science classes, especially like the more like the more hardcore ones like molecular biology, et cetera, are so focused on teaching us how to analyze things and how to understand concepts that we kind of sometimes lose track of the big picture. And that big picture understanding is really what we use in teaching. I'm, I'm really happy how in medical school, we get more and more opportunities as we go through it and through residency to really develop that skill. But I can understand how a lot of people might not, you know, have that teaching bug going into medical school. For sure. And, and, you know, like I mentioned earlier, too, I think sometimes teaching can be a little bit intimidating for people, uh, sometimes for really good reasons. You know, most of us, um, you know, and we tend to screen for this in medical school as well, are relatively humble people, you know, relatively aware of our own faults and our own deficiencies. And, and to, to sort of say, OK, I know enough to teach somebody something that takes a fair amount of confidence in your own abilities. And, you know, especially as a third, fourth year medical student, first year resident, we're often so consumed with what we don't know that the idea that we're smart enough to teach somebody else seems very foreign to us. Uh, and it's not to say that you have to be an expert in all things in order to teach it. What I found was really helpful going through was when I started teaching people who were a little bit more junior to me, you know, as a first year internal medicine resident, I had no business teaching anybody anything. Uh, but when I was a third and fourth year medical student, people had said things to me that sort of stuck that were actually really helpful ways of remembering a subject or remembering a medication or, you know, some sort of little tidbit of information that I found was really helpful. And so to me, teaching wasn't, I'm an expert, let me give you my information. Teaching was, hey, let me pass on something that somebody said to me that I found really helpful. And so, you know, I always feel, again, a little bit like an imposter when I'm teaching because I'm like, I, I didn't gain any of this knowledge. Somebody else passed it on to me in, in a really effective way. And I just want to share what they said to me with other people. Uh, and that I think helps avoid that sense of like, am I really smart enough to do this? It's like, no, I'm not. But the person who taught me probably was. And so I feel comfortable spreading that on. Yeah, I think that's really interesting what you just spoke about, the, the idea of how humility kind of contrasts with confidence, although it's both needed in the medical field, particularly as a medical educator. I'm just wondering if there are any other qualities about yourself um, that you that you really leverage when teaching or that you feel um, might be a useful tool um, as an educator that we could all potentially learn from because it's apparent that we're all going to be um, teaching in some respects over our medical education and careers. That's, that's a good question. And I mean, I'll preface it by saying the assumption underlying that question is that I am a good teacher, which I'm still not sure if I am or not. Um, you know, what I'll say is I've identified in myself when I am teaching people, 
when it seems to be most effective is when I identify areas in myself where I'm uncertain and I help people work through the same cognitive processes I went through to get a grasp on the subject. Um, you know, I, I've long believed that if I, I'm an effective teacher, it's because I'm not terribly bright. Uh, it's because I wasn't able to just pick up the textbook and just immediately have memorized all of this information. I actually had to sit down with the textbook and go, okay, I'm not going to remember this until I understand it. And I've got to go back to first principles and I've got to work things out from, from square one. And that takes a lot more time. But once you do that, you've got so many different avenues you can take to help somebody because the, the biggest barrier that we often come across as teachers is you're explaining to some something to somebody and you're getting that blank stare back. And you're like, I'm not getting through to you. The words that are coming out of my mouth are not making a difference to you. And if you don't have another pathway to sort of come at that problem and say, okay, well, let's think about it this way instead, or let's think about it this way instead, then you're going to be stuck. You're going to just be like, well, I don't know how else to explain it to you. Here's what the textbook says. This is what you need to know. And that's a really helpful way of passing on knowledge, but it's not necessarily a great way of teaching. And so I think, you know, recognizing where we are weak focusing on those areas actually makes us really good teachers on those areas. So, you know, whether or not I've accomplished that yet, I don't know. Um, but uh, but it, it's what I've noticed in terms of what seems to be effective with people. Really makes sense. I was just going to say that, like, I can see the, the, the flexibility is super important in being able to adapt to different individuals' learning styles. It's both self-reflective, but it also requires you to, to be empathetic and put yourself in the learner's shoes, I think, um, and be able to kind of morph to their different learning styles. And that gets harder and harder the further you get along in your medical training. You know, it's it's a little bit, I don't know if you've felt like that or currently feel that way when you sort of think about like music that's on the radio and you think, oh, I'm never going to be like my parents and be like, ah, oh, what is this stuff on the radio these days? And then surely, but slowly, but you find out like, oh, okay, I'm completely out of touch. The same thing happens with medical education. I remember being like a PGY2 internal medicine resident and being like, I remember what a first year clerk needs to know, what a second year clerk needs to know, what a first year resident needs to know. And I can, I can tailor my teaching to those different groups. And I'm always going to remember who's supposed to know what at what level. I'm not going to be like those staff of mine who just forget who's a fellow and who's a medical student. And then you get far enough away from it and you're like, oh, I have no idea what a medical student's supposed to know anymore. And I have no idea uh, what a resident is supposed to know anymore. And that can be a challenge from an evaluation standpoint, for sure. Where you're trying to figure out like, is this person actually at the level they're supposed to be at? Um, although I do find that taking this sort of fundamentals approach to education and starting with the building blocks and working your way up, there's very few people who don't respond to that. So you know, whether it's somebody who's in medical school and you're starting from the basics when it comes to, you know, an arrhythmia, that's great because they're still at the basics and you can work your way up from there. Oftentimes take a, you know, a cardiology fellow and start working with them on the basics when it comes to an arrhythmia and you'll quickly find out they never actually had a great grasp on that in the first place. Uh, and so that's a great workaround as well. And then, you know, like you, like you had alluded to a little bit of flexibility. So being willing to sort of say, Hey, I'm going to start talking about something and if this is all you know, old news to you, just tell me and we'll skip forward and sort of move along the process and get up there. Yeah, I think that's a really good point for people who are in our shoes, like our colleagues um, who might want to get into, involved in medical education in the future is trying to remember uh, how to distill really complex concepts like an arrhythmia down to basic building blocks so we can not only like teach our classmates if they're confused, but also teach future students that we might interact with. So super good um, take away. An example of that, because because you've all been through your cardiology block now, and 
I had to review all of those cases to decide what was going to stay and what was going to go, um, is the Wiggers diagram. Um, you know, my, my wife's a family doctor. And when I tell her that I like insist my medical students know the Wiggers diagram, she rolls her eyes at me. Um, because it's like, unless you're a cardiologist that will never come up in practice, right? Nobody, no patient is ever going to be like, oh, I'm trying to understand my rheumatoid arthritis, but would you mind drawing the Wiggers diagram for me? Like that's, that's irrelevant, but it's one of those like super fundamental building blocks. And, and it's exactly how I explain murmurs. Like I'm not, I'm not bright enough to just like know what murmurs sound like what, but if I go back to the hemodynamics of it and I'm like, Oh, okay, this is the pressure gradient between those two chambers and these two chambers. And this valve is supposed to be open insistently. This valve is supposed to be closed insistently. So it's leakiness of one valve or stenosis of the other. I can go back to fundamentals and work that out. And a, that's super helpful for me because it's a, an easy way for me to remember it. It's also a really effective way of teaching so this is a bit of a tangent, but I just want your perspective on this. Sometimes when I'm studying, I really want to go back to basics and understand everything in depth. And instead of just memorizing something, like truly understand it, because then I know it will stick. But then there's this balance between there's so much to learn. And like, will I be able to get all the material in if I take that fundamental approach? So how do you feel about like the current situation in medical education and the approach that's being taken, I guess, or whether that approach is manageable? Yeah, I mean, the answer is you can't, right? Like I, I don't know everything about echocardiography in depth and I'm an echocardiographer. Like you can't get much more narrow in terms of your scope than I am. And there's still things within my field that I don't know in great depth. And so there's always going to be that, that push and pull between, you know, I want to, I want to really fundamentally understand this thing, but I've also got like eight other learning objectives I just need to meet. And I just need to know this list of other things. And in some respects, that's why those learning objectives are there. They're there to sort of keep you focused and keep you on track. And it's one of the reasons I think that becoming a bit of a teacher yourself as you're going through your medical education is a great way to start getting in depth about the things that are particularly relevant. Because students will ask you or you will encounter problems where a fundamental understanding of the problem is helpful. Uh, and so if you're learning as you're teaching, you're going to gain a deeper level of knowledge about the things that are more relevant. And it's sort of going to automatically filter out those things that are not quite as relevant. My philosophy about medical school, um, are you familiar with the, uh, the Dunning-Kruger effect? Is that, have you ever come across that? I mean, even if you have, for people who might be listening, I'll, I'll sort of summarize it. The idea behind the Dunning-Kruger effect, and we're all familiar with it, is that your confidence in a subject is really high when you don't know much about it. And then as you start to learn more about a subject, not only are you learning the material, you're learning how big of a topic it is. And then all of a sudden your confidence starts to get lower and you're like, oh my goodness, I'm an idiot. I, I had no idea. Uh, and then it's not until you become an expert in that field that your confidence ever even begins to approach what it was on day one when you thought you knew everything, right? So like, I remember when I took up photography and I watched like 10 or 15 YouTube videos, I got a DSLR camera and I was like, oh, like I understand aperture and shutter speed. Like I'm a photographer. Like why, why do people make a big deal about like expert photographers? I know photography. And then, you know, I started getting a little bit into underwater photography and astrophotography. And I was like, oh, oh I'm, I'm an idiot. Like, I know nothing about photography. And some people can find that, that dip very demoralizing. It's actually a lot of the reasons people will give up hobbies because they realize, oh, I'm never going to master this thing. My philosophy of medical school 
is medical school should be all about getting you over that hump. And that's really disconcerting for people to hear that the goal of a school is to make you feel less confident in your abilities when you get to the end of it. Uh, but if you come out of medical school saying to yourself, I didn't realize how much there was to learn in medicine, and I'm way less confident in my ability to become a good doctor now than I was on day one of medical school, then medical school has been successful. Now, we have to balance that because that's super demoralizing if you don't know what's happening, right? If you're just like, and you'll find this because I don't think there is a good way around it. At every stage of your medical training, when you go from being a pre-clerk to a clerk, from a clerk to a PGY-1, if you're in a program that you know does something after PGY-2, PGY-3, when you move on to that fellowship and you move on to the next fellowship, whatever that is, at every single stage, you're going to be like, I'm not ready to be the next level. And your first day as a PGY-1, you're going to be like, I shouldn't be here. Like nobody taught me enough to be here. And that's, that's a sign that your training was actually good. The people who are at most risk to their patients are people who come in on day one and they're like, oh yeah, I got this. I, I, I learned everything I needed to know in medical school. Uh, because I'll tell you, you are learning things uh, in medical school now that I've long forgotten or never quite mastered. So I think we need to balance that idea that you don't need to know everything. You just need to know how much there is out there to learn. And you need to develop the skills for how you're going to acquire that information when it's relevant to you. Uh, and, and sort of giving you those tools and saying, hey, here's how you go out and find reliable information. Here's how you go out and, and learn something new if something doesn't make sense. Here's how you just learn a topic in medicine. That's a way more useful skill than to say, hey, here's you know, a list of eight genetic conditions that can affect the heart. Know those for your example. Right? You know, I, I don't know a lot of those things. But if ever they come up, now you know how to go out and learn those things. I think that's way, way more important. So if you're feeling that way, if you're feeling like, I don't know how to balance learning something in depth versus like just covering the necessary topics, uh, then good. That's, that's a really good sign that you recognize just how much there is to know. Yeah, no, that's incredibly reassuring. So thank you for being so honest. I'm sure, like, obviously I benefited from that, but I'm sure our listeners will as well. So thank you. Yeah, and I'll uh, take that time to jump to the next question we have. Um, that one's more of a practical question. Um, it's more about, um, I guess, your schedule and how you're able to, um, like where you devote your time between activities related to teaching and medical education versus your clinic. Obviously, every week is never the same. And also there's a lot of overlap probably if you're teaching while doing. Um, but I was just wondering if you could give us a little more uh, insight into that world. For sure. And what I'll try to do is something that nobody ever did for me. And I wish they had is sort of tell you what a week is like in my world for the most part, because, you know, that's, that's going to be different for everybody. But for me, the average week looks sort of like, you know, Monday, I might be in the echo lab. So I'm sitting in a dark room all day, reading echocardiograms, writing reports, and intermittently sporadically through that day, I'll go in. My fellows are usually the one doing the transesophageal echocardiograms, but I'll go in and help them out or teach and sort of help them through that. Um, Tuesdays, I have clinic. Wednesday, I'm probably back in the echo lab doing the same thing. Thursdays, I've got clinic. And then Fridays are a bit of a flex day for me. So they're supposed to be my sort of quote unquote protected academic time. Usually if somebody's on vacation, the lab needs to be covered. I've got extra patients I need to see in clinic. There's always something that can occupy that time. But it's time I try to sort of say, okay, that's time where I should be trying to do a little bit more of my academic educational side of things. 
Now, obviously that week fluctuates dramatically. There's times when I'm on service and I'm not doing any echo. I'm just looking after patients in the hospital. That's, you know, eight-ish weeks out of the year. Um, and there's going to be some weeks that are a little bit lighter and some weeks like this week that are a lot heavier. Uh, so where you find time to do things like teach or get involved in medical education all comes down to how you prioritize the little bits of spare time you have uh, when you have it. And also, like you alluded to, how you integrate those things into what you're already doing. So, you know, when I'm in clinic, uh, at the moment, I don't have a resident working with me in clinic, but there's one working down the hall. And if I have a patient who's got an interesting murmur, I just like say to the patient, is it okay with you? I'm going to go get a student. And I close the door, I go get them, I bring them in, I have them listen to it. Um, and, you know, I'm not doing that to, to check a box in terms of teaching. I'm doing it because I enjoy it. But that's a way I can feel like even if I have a busy week and I'm in clinic the whole week, I still got to do a little bit of teaching. It wasn't just, you know, all just clinical work. Uh, and then, of course, there's always going to be little bits of time where you can find time to do things. The sad reality is most of that time is going to be evenings or weekends. Uh, and so that's one of the big deterrents for people pursuing extra clinical activities is it starts to eat into your life. And, and I actually think we're getting better but we still don't do nearly a good enough job at, uh, at helping people find a good work-life balance. Uh, and so, you know, one of the things that helps me is that the, the teaching education side of things I find fun. So I don't feel like that's the kind of thing I need to balance my work with my life. That's, you know, something I actually truly enjoy always doing, you know, I enjoy all of my work, but some days you enjoy it more than others. Um, and so that sort of helps. Uh, and then realistically, it's just some weeks you say, I don't have time to do that this week, right? This week, I, I'm not going to do any curriculum development this week because my options are spend time with my family or do education. And this week, I'm going to spend time with my family because that's important. Um, and maybe next week, if I've got, you know, a little bit more time off, well, next week, I really buckle down and I do a little bit more. So finding that balance, I, I'm not going to pretend to be an expert in it, um, but it's, it's all about trying to integrate it into your life as much as you can. Yeah, thank you for commenting on the those issues of balance because I think at any stage in training and and medical your medical career that's always going to be a challenge. Um, and I know you you previously mentioned how time is also a big barrier in in integrating teaching and medical education into practice. I was wondering if there's any other key barriers you've encountered to integrating medical education or teaching into your practice. And if so, how we can more uh, structurally or systemically address these barriers? Uh, that's a great question. Um, and if you and I can find the answer to it, we'll publish a paper about it and uh, <laughs> we'll become famous. Um, you know, there's lots of, there's lots of resources and lack of resources is often the biggest barrier and the biggest resource is time. We've talked about that. Um, along those similar lines, increasingly as time goes on, our clinical world is becoming busier. Patients are more complicated because they're living longer. The amount of knowledge you need to have uh, is increasing. The responsibility you have for patients in terms of what tests are being done, how much follow-up do they require, those things are all increasing. And despite that, the amount of time we're allocated to do those things is not going up. And so one of the biggest barriers I find is, you know, on a busy clinical service, I want to teach around every single every single case. And yet if we've got 35 patients on our inpatient team, there's just not enough time in the day. Uh, and so that can be a barrier. Now, that being said, how you address those problems on an individual level comes down to finding ways to integrate your teaching in a time efficient manner. 
that's a skill I'm absolutely still working on because at the moment, my approach to life is basically, oh, there's 35 patients on the team. I'm still going to teach around every single patient. It just means nobody's leaving this building until eight o'clock tonight. That's not a good long-term solution. Um, but finding ways to be efficient with your teaching, I think, is, is really useful. That being said, that circumvents the problem. It doesn't fix the problem. The, the fix to that problem happens at a, a systemic level. Uh, and that requires uh, an institution that prioritizes education. And I try to stress that every single time I'm talking with medical students, especially, but also with residents and fellows, you know, part of medical training is service. Part of medical training is the expectation that you are doing things solely for the benefit of patients without the expectation that you're a passive learner in that process. That balance happens at a systemic level. How much time do you have just to be a learner? How much time are you going to be sort of service related? And I think we're really lucky here in Ottawa, at least within the division of cardiology, we really do prioritize education. Our residents have a lot of time dedicated just for that. Uh, at the same time, the process of being a learner doesn't have to just be the process of being taught. So as a learner, if you view your life as divided only into times I'm providing a, a service and times I'm learning, then yeah, your life is going to seem really skewed toward the service side of things because you're going to be like, you know, maybe in a week, there's a couple of hours where I sat down and somebody taught me. But on the whole, most of it was spent looking after patients. That can be really educational time. And actually, if I think back about my medical training, you know, how much of what I am now as a doctor is because of something somebody taught me versus how much is because I just looked after a lot of patients and you learn on the job. It's a lot more of the latter. And if you think about it that way, then that can actually really revamp your approach to your learning style as you're going through. It's much less, there's things I have to get through in order to learn and much more, I am constantly learning. Uh, and the reality is that process doesn't stop when you finish your residency. You know, as soon as you become a staff, it's not like the medical world stops changing. You're still got to keep up with everything that's going on. And if you've already found ways to integrate that kind of learning and that kind of professional development into your day-to-day -day activity, your life is going to be way easier. How do we, A, you know, convince systems that they need to prioritize education um, and B, help students understand where they can find learning in the day-to-day -day work that they're doing. Those are challenging issues, but I think even just talking about them goes a long way to, to addressing the problem. Awesome. Thank you. Uh, so next, would you be able to speak a little bit to whether you feel all specialties are made equal when it comes to pursuing a career in medical education or teaching, and then maybe also like clinical settings? For example, if someone wants to work rurally, like is that an option to be teaching? versus in more of a city center? For sure. I may sort of address that one a little bit more because from the perspective of our all specialties created equal, it's tough to know because I've never been, you know, a, a teacher to any extent in any other specialty. I, I only come across them in a purely clinical sense because when I'm speaking to another specialist, it's, you know, really only about patient care. That being said, I think everything else I've said is still true no matter what specialty you're in. Even if you're in a specialty that's extremely service heavy and historically cardiology is sort of one of those services, right? We, we tend to be extremely busy, you know, fairly long hours. Uh, if you are building teaching into your day-to-day -day activities, there is always the opportunity for teaching. So I would never say that there's any specialty where it's like, oh yeah, if you want to teach, don't go into that specialty. If you can learn enough to become that specialist, then clearly there's time to teach. Uh, because somebody taught you. So 
you know, I don't think that there's any one specialty that's better or worse at this. I think it's it's individuals who prioritize it or don't prioritize it. Uh, when it comes to the rural versus sort of academic setting, there's a few pieces to that. Uh, there are absolutely programs where residents and medical students will be sent out to rural settings. So just because you're working in a little bit more of a rural setting doesn't mean you won't have trainees working with you. It's often just a matter of expressing an interest. So even in a lot of the surrounding communities around Ottawa that are quite small, that would be sort of considered quote unquote community by typical standards. If any of those people reached out to the university and said, hey, I want to teach. Well, we're never you know, at a surplus of teachers. So there's always those opportunities, even in a rural setting. The other thing that, that I think we haven't really talked about much from a teaching standpoint is the most teaching I do in a day is actually with my patients. Uh, and that doesn't stop when you're in a rural setting either. Uh, and it's surprising how similar it is, you know, teaching a trainee to teaching a patient. Um, the, the fundamental understanding that needs to be there is actually quite similar. And I think if you take the time when you see patients to teach them and help them understand their own conditions, that will, A, be better for their health. Because I think people who understand what's going on with their bodies know better how to look after themselves and are more compliant with the therapies you offer. You know, I think there's a ton of benefit to educating uh, our patients. It'll also just make you a better teacher. If you're constantly explaining something to somebody who has, on average, much less of a knowledge base than a medical student or a resident, you find those avenues that you can approach a complicated topic from. You find metaphors, you find analogies, you find ways of explaining complicated topics in simple ways. And just like I said earlier, you know, how medical students often ask the most difficult questions, patients often ask the most difficult questions, you know, because they don't take anything for granted. You say something and they say, well, why is that? And, and you're like, oh, I never really thought about why that was. Um, but now that, you, now that you asked me, it's a really good question. So, you know, teaching them will encourage them to ask questions, will make you better at what you do, both as a clinician and as a teacher. So if you in a rural setting, that's how I always sort of envisioned if, if ever I worked in a rural setting, that's just what I would do. I would probably dedicate like an evening once every couple of weeks and just have like patient seminars where patients could come to my office and learn about a condition. And we do those kinds of things at the Heart Institute, right? People can come learn about their atrial fibrillation in an evening or something like that. So if teaching is, is a passion of yours, it doesn't mean you must be working at a large academic center. You can find other ways of integrating that into your life. Yeah, thank you. That was, um, I really like the perspective you offer there and, and the patient education component is, is really fascinating as well. Um, and I, I think that's a lot of the reason why people go into medicine is for those patient interactions. And it's, it's nice to see that you can integrate and, and develop some teaching skills and, and developing further metaphors and analogies, as you said, to different knowledge bases. So thank you for sharing that. Um, from a student perspective, I obviously throughout our conversation so far, I've been hearing a lot of themes of, of lifelong learning, even as a staff at, at all levels of training. And I'm just wonder at, wondering at our level of training as medical students, how we can better get involved in medical education or teaching or perhaps acquire exposure, even though we're still at this early learning stage. Uh, yeah, so, so I, if we sort of break those two things apart from a teaching and education standpoint. One of the things I wish I had thought a little bit more about as a medical student was you have the privilege right now of being taught a lot. So you get to see all these different teaching styles. You've got one lecturer rotating through after the other, after the other, after the other. That's not something you're going to have the opportunity to see again. 
Um, now, you will, from a clinical standpoint, right, you'll see different teaching styles at the bedside over and over and over again. That's sort of more the clinical teaching aspect. But as a lecturer, I wish I had paid more attention to the people who were lecturing me uh, to sort of say, oh, what works and what doesn't? What engages me? What doesn't engage me? It's only now that I'm starting to get into, you know, health education scholarship and I'm learning about the theories of education and how to give a good lecture and those things that I'm actually even starting to think about that. You know, how do you engage, how do you engage a room full of people? How do you keep a lecture interesting? What makes a good PowerPoint slide? Um, you're, you're seeing example after example after example of things that are good and things are bad. And you don't even need to tell you who's good and who's bad because you know, right? If it works for you, it was good. If it doesn't work for you, it wasn't good, at least not for you. Uh, and so I think just being cognizant of, I'm going to be doing this someday. And that seems really hard to imagine when you're a medical student sitting in class that, you know, oftentimes within the decade, you will find yourself at that lectern speaking to a group of medical students as the expert in that subject now. Uh, and it's hard to think that far ahead, but if you are cognizant of that as you're going through, I think you'll pick up really good habits and maybe learn about some of the things that other people are doing that you don't like so much. From an education standpoint, I don't think it's ever too early to get into education. The easiest avenue probably into the world of medical education is to talk to people who are medical educators who are involved in curriculum development and to find out who's doing research. Um, now, I've already confessed that I'm not a big researcher, but there's not a lot of better ways to learn about a subject than to, to help somebody with their research in it, because then you have to read around it. You learn a lot about that subject. And so right now, there's huge changes happening in the world of medical education. And you may have heard a little bit about competency by design or competency-based medical education. We are shifting our entire perspective in medicine to go from a time-based training. So if you were there for six months, we assume you knew what you were doing to show us that, that you know what you're doing by the end of a six month period before you move on to the next step. That kind of a paradigm shift leads to a ton of low hanging fruit for research because this is all new. So we know nothing about how the world is going to respond to this. Uh, and so there's a lot of people in medical education who are getting into it. So. Um, we all have mixed feelings, you know, about competency by design and how it's being implemented and the research behind it. And there's pros and cons, to be fair. I'm not endorsing it as the be-all, end-all in terms of curriculum or, or way to evaluate, but it is to say that there's a lot of research being done in the field right now. So if you were sort of thinking as a medical educator, I'd like to get into this, that's a great place to start because there's tons of people working on it. Like I had said, you know, I think it might've been before we started, I was sort of talking to Jenna that, you know, if you just say to people, hey, I'm interested in medical education. Nine times out of 10, if you say that to a lecturer or you say that to a CBL tutor, they are either going to say, oh, well, that's funny because I'm doing a research project on X, Y, or Z right now, and I could use a hand. Do you want to help me? Or, hey, you know who'd be a great person for you to talk to if you're interested in this uh, is this person. And we'll give you their email address, email that person, and same thing goes. Um, these people are out there. Nobody is like, oh, I've got too many research assistants. I've got too many students working with me. I don't want more. Uh, everybody's happy for help. So if you just express an interest, you'd be amazed how far that Thanks, Dr. Mollick, for speaking with us today. And thank you for listening to our episode on medical education. We hope you enjoyed it. Please share the episode with anyone you think might benefit from it.
that's it for today's episode please let us know your thoughts and comments on the show on social media we're on facebook instagram and twitter you can always find our podcast on spotify apple or any other podcast retrieval service of your choice and make sure to subscribe so you're kept up to date with new content